Well, good morning and welcome to Gateway. It's good to have all of you here with us this morning, especially if it's your first time or if you're visiting with us for baby and family dedication. We're glad to have each of you here with us. Uh, I said, now Aubrey naturally said uh, it's time for the real deal, and I said I'm workshopping nicknames, uh, and I paid her just to try that out, and I, I don't know if it'll stick, but I like the ring of the real deal. Uh, hey, what a great day today is seeing families commit to raising their kids in the ways of Jesus, but also seeing the church committing to, to these kids as well. And, and I hope that you take this commitment seriously as a church because many times the most impactful relationship for young people is one with a Christian that isn't their parent. And I know that there, it's, it's odd to think that you would ever be at odds with your teenager or with your kid and that they would need somebody else to speak truth into their life or to mentor them, but it's going to happen. There's going to be a time, and it's always good to have a good, committed Christian in that place to come alongside and help them in times of need. And so I hope that we take both sides of this pledge seriously because it's so important to the development of these kids. Now, as you can see from this title package this morning, we're starting a new sermon series called Family Life. And today, we're going to start off by talking about marriage. Marriage! I'm sorry, I couldn't uh, resist that. Uh, and that is an ever-growing, uh, it's an ever-going-away reference, uh, but the older crowd got it. I, I probably don't need to tell you that the traditional biblical family is under intense attack. But before we really get to all that this morning, I want to share a story with you first. In his book, When I'm Needing a Fresh Start, Dan Stuker tells the story about a small twin-engine plane on an isolated European airfield that revved up its engines as it prepared for taxi and for takeoff. As they were getting ready to hit the runway, a lone figure suddenly raced across the runway through the pelting rain, his silhouette illuminated by brief flashes of lightning. And once on board, this man had a brief but it, it heated exchange with the pilot, and afterwards he turned frustrated to the passengers that were on board. He said, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Walter Beach. I am the man who designed this aircraft. I know what it can and cannot do, and I don't think that it's wise for you to fly in these stormy weather conditions tonight. I'm sure your trip is very important. I know this isn't what you want to hear, but if I were you, I would not fly in this kind of weather. Well, at that time, the pilot interrupted and said his piece. He said, ladies and gentlemen, I have flown this plane many times over the years, and I know what it can and cannot do. I know the weather is bad, but I don't anticipate any problems. Please remain seated, and we will take off shortly. Well, after both had spoke of the handful of people on the plane, only one of them disembarked with Mr. Beach, the creator and designer of the aircraft. Minutes later, the plane took off, and within just a few moments, it had crashed, killing everyone on board. And the lone woman that made the decision to get off the plane was named Eleanor Roosevelt, the wife of the President of the United States. Her life was spared because she took the advice of the man who had designed and created the aircraft. Now, when you first hear that story, you might wonder what it has to do with marriage, but I believe that we're going to find out 
just what it has to do with marriage here in just a few moments. And I want to tell you right here at the beginning of this sermon, right here at the beginning of this series, there are going to be things that we talk about that aren't very popular in our culture today. You know, things have changed a lot in our country and in our culture over the last 75 years. And the guidelines for marriage in our culture, well, they're not what they once were. And so we may say some things this morning that you're not going to like. They might rub you the wrong way. But before you dismiss these words from the Bible as just outdated counsel of some ancient book, I want us to remember a couple of truths. First, the guidance that we get from the Bible is guidance from our creator and our designer. These are not just the words of some human writer. They are the words of God. Paul says in 2 Timothy Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Since God created us and since He is the designer of family and marriage, He knows what's best. He knows what we need. He knows what our families need and how we must live in order to enjoy His greatest blessings. Secondly, there are countless examples all around us of crashes that demonstrate how not to succeed by the disregard of God's Word. We don't need to cite the divorce rate this morning or other statistics in order to justify the urgent necessity to rely on the guidance that comes from the Bible. Our world is in a state of chaos right now. It's in a state of confusion right now when it comes to family life and relational issues, primarily because we have ignored God's word in this area. We've tried to take our own roads because we weren't happy with God's path, or it was taking too long, or we didn't want to do that. And it's got to send us some trouble. And all of us are guilty of this. All of us are trying to make our own way so many times, and we've all been affected either directly or indirectly by our blatant disregard of God's plan. You know, I was thinking about this, about that this week, and about how our disobedience, man, it gets us into messes time and time again, yet we keep getting ourselves into messes time and time again. We try to make our own way because we don't like the ways of God, or we don't want to do that. And while it might be more enjoyable for a little while, we often find ourselves in a mess once again. And it leads me back to this belief that I've long held. God put these guidelines, he put rules and laws into place to ultimately make our life easier and less stressful. It may not be as much fun. We may not like giving him control, but he put these in place so that our lives would ultimately be better. And when we rebel against those, our life, it gets more complicated. We create many of our problems for ourselves. We create complications with God, yes, but with our fellow humans as well. And something to, it's something to remember the next time that we're tempted to do something for short-term pleasure or something that we want to do rather than go the way of God. Now before we jump in this morning, I just want to stop and take a moment and ask that you pray with me for all of our families. I'd like to lift up the people of our church at every campus, whether they're currently in a marriage relationship, whether they're longing to be in a marriage relationship. 
Maybe they're the victim of a bad marriage relationship. And also for those who enjoyed a long and fruitful marriage relationship, but are now living alone because the Lord took your spouse home to be with him. And so will you all, let's just pause. Will you all pray silently in your seat there and just lift up all of our families and all of our marriages before we begin this morning? Father God, we come to you this morning and we just lift up the marriages of our church, the families of our church, the marriages that are in, on the mountaintop. They're in great places. The marriages that are on rocky ground right now. The marriages that are in trouble, that are failing right now. I I lift up those that are longing for the marriage relationship, that they would seek your ways as they seek a spouse. I lift up those that have lost somebody, somebody that you have brought home to them as they grieve this process, as they mourn and they try to live on their own. I I lift them up. I lift those going through divorce right now, or maybe they've already been through it and they don't know what to do. I lift them up to you now. And Father, I lift up all of our families as we all try to figure out how to make this work, how to, how to keep our kids alive, how to keep them pointed to you. Father, I just lift up the families of this church. I lift up the marriages of your church. I pray that we would keep our eyes focused on your son, Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you were lied to every day, since the day that you were born. You're born, and you are born into this lie that people perpetuate around you. And that's all that you ever know. That's all that people people ever talk about. That is your truth, in a way. Well, then how would you respond when the actual truth was presented to you? For instance, if you grew up in the South in the 1800s, and you were repeatedly told that people with black skin and of African descent were inferior human beings, would you believe it? Or would you rise above the lie and find the truth? Or if you'd grown up in Germany in the 1930s and were told that the Aryan race was the superior race and that Jews were a threat to humanity and that Adolf Hitler was the savior of the German people and of the world, would you have detected the lie or would you have bought into it? Or if you were born into Pakistan in the last 50 years and raised by Muslim parents and you were told that your God Allah wanted the advancement of Islam at any cost and that if you gave your life as a suicide bomber to kill infidels, you would be given rewards in the afterlife, including including dozens of virgins at your beck and call, would you believe the lie or would you reject it? Would you even be able to tell that you're living a lie at all? And we all like to think that we would see through the falsehood, that we would be wise enough to discover the truth. But when a lie is repeated long enough and by enough people, and you're surrounded enough about it, by it, it's hard not to believe it too, isn't it? Now, why do we bring this up? Because it's exactly what's going on in our culture today when it comes to the topic of the family and of marriage. But that shouldn't be any surprise to us. You know, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2 that the devil will use human instruments with clearly devised lies that many will believe to their own destruction. And we don't use this translation often, but I do like how the Living Bible translation puts it. 
It says, This man of sin will come as Satan's tool, full of satanic power, and will trick everyone with strange demonstrations and will do great miracles. He will completely fool those who are on their way to hell because they have said no to the truth. They have refused to believe it and love it and let it save them. So God will allow them to believe lies with all their hearts. And all of them will be justly judged for believing falsehood, refusing the truth, and enjoying their sins. And the big lie that's being told over and over again in our culture today, and for the past few decades, is that traditional biblical marriage isn't necessary anymore to have a blessed and fruitful life, and a blessed and fruitful family. But when it comes to family life, a traditional Christ-centered marriage is the foundation for a blessed and fruitful family, and the Bible is the foundation for a blessed and fruitful marriage. And as Christ followers who are living in this dark and, and, and ugly world, we have to have a biblical worldview. We have to know what the Bible says in order to follow it, but we have to follow what the Bible says then, including the belief that marriage was ordained by God, not by man. If marriage was a human idea, it it could be changed or modified or even thrown out altogether, but it wasn't man's idea, it was God's. In Genesis 2.18, we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now some versions here say suitable for him. Then down in verse 21 of the same chapter, we read, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Now there's a lot going on here with the original Hebrew language. That's what it was originally written in. And it's stuff that we can't quite capture with our own language. But what it seems like the language is trying to say is that there is this mysterious and special closeness between the man made from dust and the woman made from his side. No other animal or or being in all of creation was created in this way. You know, it reminds me of the story of the little boy who heard this story one Sunday in Sunday school, and a few days later, he has a pain in his side, and he goes, ah, mom, help, I think I'm having a wife. Ah." You know, verse 22 says, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And I love the way that the message paraphrase translates it. It says, the man said, finally, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, name her woman for she was made from God. And I think what he's saying is, wow, she looks good. I mean, I've been looking at all these animals all day and all these other things, and now there's somebody finally like me, somebody that fits me. This is great. And I'm going to spare you the traditional woe man, because that's, I feel like that's the church tradition when we talk about this, but he's excited, right? Verse 24 says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is a biblical monogamous relationship. One man, one woman for life. But why? Why are these the elements of a biblical view of marriage? Well, there are at least three good reasons. And first, the first one is that God created marriage so that we could experience the deepest possible relationship on earth. 
Verse 25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Adam and Eve, they had no inhibitions. They had no secrets. They were completely free and comfortable with one another. And there is a physical, emotional, and spiritual bond that develops in a marriage that is deeper than any human, other human relationship. I mean, physically, your husband or your wife should know more about you than anybody else. Emotionally, mentally, all these things, it's a, the deepest human relationship that we can have. And I think if we conducted a poll of every adult in the room today and asked them, what is it that you really want out of this life? I think many, if not all, would have a desire to be happily married in their top three, to find their soulmate, to find the person that they can do life with forever. Yet so many people search endlessly for this, going through relationship after relationship, sexual encounter after sexual encounter, but they are never able to find it because they're doing all these things that are outside of God's plan. Second, God created marriage so children would have a secure, healthy, and loving environment to grow up in. Studies have shown that, parent, that kids in two-parent homes are twice as likely to succeed and be free from psychological and addictive problems in life. Now, granted, there are a lot of kids from single-parent homes that do extremely well, and there are kids from two-parent homes that have their own issues, but I don't think anyone would argue that a single-parent home is God's plan. Now, that doesn't mean that kids from single-parent homes are, are doomed or that single parents are, are going to hell or anything like that. God can make everything beautiful. We just sang this song. He can turn what the enemy meant for evil and make it for good. Nothing is ever unable to be made right by God. But it does mean that the best recipe for success and for the least amount of trouble is to follow God's plan and have a two-parent home. Third, God created marriage so there would be a tangible example of God's relationship with us. When the Apostle Paul described the nature of God's relationship to his people in Ephesians 5, he used the example of human marriage. And he writes in verses 31 and 32, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. As we grow in our marriage, we're reminded that God is so good to us. He gave us this partner for life. He forgives us. He loves us even when we are unfaithful to Him. And so I think it's clear that God created marriage so we can enjoy the deepest of relationships, so that our children will have a great environment to grow up in, and so the world can witness a living testimony of just how much God loves us. Another truth in our biblical worldview of family life and of marriage is that Satan will attack us at every turn. He will attack us at every turn, and he's going to get in there any way that he can. And we have to be ready for it. We have to be ready and on the defense for him to come for us. It's why we need to do our best to know God's word and to apply it to our lives. Friends, we cannot be naive and think that the devil isn't already trying to pry his way into your family and into your marriage and into the lives of your kids, into your weekends, into your children's schools, into their social media accounts, and into every nook and cranny of your existence. If Satan can find a foothold, if you give him that opportunity, he will certainly take it. I want us to listen to Genesis 3, 1 through 5. 
Now the serpent, who is Satan, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit, eat of, the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I want us to notice Satan's line of attack here. And first he gets them to to question God's word, forcing them to question whether, did, did God actually say what you think he said? Did he actually say that or is there some wiggle room here? Next, he denies God's word, telling them, well, it's not true. That's, that's not true. He didn't, he didn't mean that, or he didn't really say that. And then he reverses God's word, telling them that they won't die, but rather really fully, truly live if they eat from the tree. And we know what happened next. They partake in the forbidden fruit. They listen to the lies, and it gets them into trouble, and there's a great crash. They didn't listen to the creator and the designer. They listened to the person telling the lies. It's called the fall of man for a reason. Now there's blaming and finger pointing happening in the garden. And eventually they get evicted. They have to pack up and move out of the garden because of their disobedience. Their disobedience got them into a mess. Afterwards, they have two sons, one of which kills the other, and the family has become dysfunctional. And guess what? Satan didn't stop with them. He didn't call it a day after it was over. No, he's been attacking the family ever since, including yours and mine. And here are the, a few of the lies that he's telling today. First, there's the cohabitation lie where Satan says, has God really ever said that you have to remain pure until marriage? I mean, come on, that's an old-fashioned 1950s ideal. That's not true today. Go ahead and live together. Come on, that's what we're doing these days. Be sexually intimate together. Before you marry, just, just you got to know you're compatible, right? I mean, if you're not compatible sexually, then, then your marriage is just in trouble, I mean, this way, you'll have a basis for comparison. If you build up your numbers, then you can compare with how everybody else is doing. Except the problem is that basis of comparison can destroy your marriage. When you have a basis of comparison, now the problem is it's comparison. And now there's comparison happening. And it's going to leave your eventual spouse wondering how they compare to the partners that came before them. And there will always be that lingering thought of, what if... I'm not as good as she was. What if I'm not good as the last guy? And this is also why pornography is so harmful to our marriages, or even a future marriage. It creates unrealistic and harmful comparisons in your brain that your spouse cannot and should not live up to. There's the divorce lie. Where Satan says, if you're not happy, man, get out and try it again. You know what? Like, roll the dice again. If this one didn't work out, then, then move on to the next one. Because working on this, man, it's, it's too hard and it's too time-consuming. Time you don't have the time. You don't want to waste time with this person. you got to get out and try again. This is just irreconcilable. Just don't give God a chance to restore it because you'll be unhappy the rest of your life. In our culture, man, they bought into this lie, hook, line, and sinker. I mean, it's commonplace even amongst Christians these days. Friends, divorce should not 
be amongst your first options when you have trouble in your marriage. It may end up that it's a last resort for biblical reasons. For you, If you or your partner over a period of time refuse to repent or to change their behavior and get biblical counseling, but it shouldn't come up early when trouble rears its ugly head. It shouldn't be on the top three of your options when you start having marriage issues. Because let me tell you something that most of you already know. If you're married, trouble is coming your way and it's coming fast. All marriages have issues. There's not a marriage that doesn't have an issue. And if you haven't had one yet, I'm sorry, it's coming, right? I'm not trying to be a pessimist. I'm an optimist, right? But every marriage is going to have trouble. Why? Because you married a sinner. And you know what? Your Your spouse married a bigger sinner, right? We are sinners trying to make this work. We mess up. We say things we don't mean. We have to apologize. There is going to be trouble in your marriage. And if you have divorce on your mind as the quick fix, then you'll never stick around long enough to find happiness. Contrary to what you might think, divorce is normally not the key to your happiness, and it's not usually the key to the health of your family either. In fact, from what I've heard, it's a pretty gut-wrenching experience. Friends, don't buy into the lie that Satan is putting out there that divorce is the answer, especially right at the beginning of the issue. And the third lie is the homosexuality lie. And this lie has become so prevalent in our culture and it's becoming more and more accepted in our world. And I'm sure you already know that. Satan says, let your lust lead your love. Let your lust and your your desires be what leads you. And he also says, your identity is grounded in your sexuality. And so two people of the same sex, they're attracted to one another, they move in together, they get married to one another according to the laws in their state, and some even go on to adopt children and raise them. And while that might seem harmless on some levels, the fact is that it's not in line with the Bible. In the Old Testament, Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. In the New Testament, Paul says, Therefore, God gave them, up in their, gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary in, to nature. And the, women, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Listen, in this fallen world, we love and respect every person, regardless of their sins. Because friends, we are all sinners. Let me say it again. We are all sinners. Every single one of us in this room is a sinner here this morning. There is not a person in here that is without sin. But Jesus died on the cross so we don't have to remain in our sin any longer. Because of the cross, we can repent and receive his grace. The amazing grace that comes from Jesus Christ is available to all. But Paul says in Romans 9 that if we cannot, if we cannot deliberately stop sinning, and we cannot continue to sin and continue to receive forgiveness from Christ. And just like lust or adultery or murder, all unrepentant sin separates us from the Father. You know, Christopher Yuan is a professor at Moody Bible Institute. 
But he's also a former practicing gay man who has returned to Jesus as a prodigal son. And he's co-written a book with his mother, Angela, about his journey, about his family's journey through his life. And it's titled Out of a Far Country. And it offers hope for anybody that's affected by homosexuality, whether it's they themselves or in their family. And in speaking on homosexuality, Yuan says, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, it is holiness. Now, the fact is that holiness is the opposite of every sinful behavior. You know, we said at the beginning, the lie that that Satan tells us is that we should let our lust lead our love. And so whether whether it's homosexuality or heterosexuality, if you're letting your lust lead you, then you're going to end up in trouble. You're going to end up in a place you don't want to get. It's against the, the, the way of God. And so holiness truly is the opposite of every sinful behavior. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And certainly there are some that are born with the same-sex attraction, But that doesn't mean that you cannot be born again. Someone may feel a same-sex attraction, but Paul tells us that we are to suppress our natural desires, our natural sinful desire when it comes to sinful thoughts and behaviors. There are sins of all kinds that would leave this world in just a disturbing place if they were not suppressed. In our culture, it tells some a certain section of people that it's okay to express yourself to the full and be everything you are, be who you were created to be. It's okay to let it all out. But then they tell another section, well, it's not okay for you. <laughs> not okay for you to do that. I mean, we, we got, a, we got a, a place for you, right? Not all people can express themselves. See, the world picks and chooses who can express themselves, and it's okay for some, but it's not okay for others. But the Bible says that we must all suppress our sinful desire if we are to lead Christ-like lives. I want you to understand this morning that I'm I'm not trying to be hateful. I know there is a lot of controversy and a lot of questions surrounding this issue, and one big reason is that people have made sexuality, made their sexuality their identity. And so, of course, When somebody starts speaking out against homosexuality, if that is your identity, then it's going to make you mad. It's going to make you defensive. It's going to feel like a personal attack. And so here's a truth that Christopher Yuan has put out there. It's something I fully agree with. And that is that you are not your sexuality. Your identity is found only in Christ Not your sexuality. Your identity is found only in Jesus Christ. Sexuality has become so intertwined with identity in our culture today, and that's why it feels like somebody's personally attacking you or your brother or your cousin or your loved one that is dealing with this. When people call it a sin, you feel like it is an attack on your character and on your identity. But none of our identities should be what our sin struggle is. None of our identities, nobody should be known as pornography watcher. Nobody should be known as adulterer. Nobody should be known as murderer or liar or thief. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus cut through 
in his interactions with people. He saw through the veil of sin to their true identity, who they were through him. And that's how we should be as well. Our identity is in Jesus Christ who gives us victory over the sins that so easily entangle us. So there is no hate here for same-sex attracted people. There is only love. I mean that. But with that love, there's also a desire to allow God to conform our behavior and conform our character into the image of his son Jesus, which Paul says was his ultimate plan for all of us, that we would all be made to look more like Jesus. And in the end, this is why God created your family and mine, to help us look more and more like Jesus. God designed the family, and the family is a microcosm of the church. And the foundation for a healthy family life is a traditional biblical marriage. And we're going to be talking about parenting next week, but having a biblical marriage is the best thing that you can do for your kids. As we finish up this morning, I want to ask, what if you grew up in a home where the truth was believed? modeled, and taught day after day. If God's word was taught, modeled, and believed day after day, would you hold on to it or would you reject it? Maybe you would question it when you got older, but in the end, I think you would come back to it if it truly is the truth and acknowledge that this truth is the best thing for your life. So today, I want to invite you to believe embrace and teach this foundational truth about your family, that God designed it, that God created it, and that he knows best, and that he created it to help us become more like his son Jesus, a loving Savior who went to the cross for each of us so that our sin may be washed away. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning, and this is, this is just some tough things going on because our culture has gotten to a point where it's not really in line with your word anymore. So some of this can be upsetting. Some of this can make us sad. Some of it, I mean, it, we can be angry. We can be sad. It invokes a lot of emotions. And Father, I just, I know there, there are those here this morning that are struggling in their marriage, <laughs> that they've been fighting for a long time and they just don't know what's next. I know there are some that are right after a divorce or heading into a divorce and they, they don't know what to do next. There, there's some, thank, you know, we're so thankful that there are some that have this marriage, that everything's great, but I pray that they would hear these words and know that this is a constant battle that Satan is always trying to find that foothold. He wants to destroy the family. And so, Father, I pray that we would remain true to your word, no matter what situation we're in. We would remain true to your word. We would try to live like your son Jesus has modeled for each one of us. I pray that we would remember that all of us are sinners, that we married a sinner that is going to make mistakes, that we would forgive those mistakes as your son Jesus has forgiven each one of us. Not seven times, but 77 times. That we would always forgive because I know 
as a sinner, I am always in need of forgiveness from you. Father, I pray that for those that are dealing with divorce, that are dealing with homosexuality, whether in their life or the life of a loved one, for those that don't know that maybe living together or maybe considering that, I, I just pray about these lies that we have allowed Satan to kind of make popular in our culture. And Father, it's really confusing sometimes. We can get really upset about things. I just pray that we would always rely on you. We would always go to your word as the truth. And I know sometimes we don't know the way, but when maybe it's not clear, I just pray that we would, we would come to you and we would submit and lay everything down at your feet. Just know that you are there even when we don't know what to do next. Father, I pray that we would stop letting the things, our mistakes be our identity, letting our sins be our identity, whatever that might be, that we would know that we are made full through your son Jesus, that our identity is found in you and your son Jesus and not in our sin, whatever that might be. Father, I lift up all the marriages. I lift up those seeking marriages. I lift up those that have lost a marriage or lost a spouse. I lift up our families on this day as we commit to raising our kids in your church. Whether we did it today or we did it eight years ago, that we would remember that commitment, not only as parents, but as the church and help these families out in times of need. Father, I thank you for your love that you, gave us a mar- that you gave us marriage to be a representation of that. That though we have this deep relationship with one another, the relationship with Jesus goes even deeper. And he still loves us even when he sees all of our warts and our faults. I thank you for that love. I thank you for the amazing grace that came from Jesus when he went to the cross for each one of us. And I thank you that the grave was empty on the third day, that we worship a risen Savior and a living hope. And we can tackle anything this world has to throw at us because our Savior is not dead. And one day, there's more to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're here this morning and you've never made Jesus the King of your life, I'd encourage you to think about repenting of your sin, turning away from your old life, and coming forward to be baptized. That we can all, that we can all celebrate with you the great act of baptism that you can walk out of here a new creation this morning. There's no greater day than today to make that decision. Maybe you want to place roots here at Gateway and place your membership and you love what we're doing here in the community. You love what this is all about. And man, the church is about being a family and supporting one another in the tough times when our marriages aren't going well, but also when our marriage and family are going on a mountaintop. Man, we can support one another and that's what it's all about. So if you'd like to place your membership here. I can talk to you about that as well. Or if you just need prayer this morning, whatever it might, you might be going through this morning, I would love to pray with you. Maybe there's somebody down the road, down the aisle that you'd like to, to pray with. Just put your arm around them and just go to God in prayer or whatever is going on in their life. This world is hard sometimes, but God has given us this amazing gift of prayer and we need to use it more honestly. So if you'd like to pray with me, I'll, I'll be right down front here. I'd love to pray with you over whatever's going on. So if you had a decision to make or you just need some prayer this morning, I'll be right down. 
But I ask that all of us stand and sing our final song together.